0: Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone.
1: This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Breakdown Sub. My obsession. Once again, I am half of your gay, 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 gay hosts, Matt Koplik. Once again, John Miscavige and I are in a feud. You can see all about it on Broadway World or all that chat. But in the meantime, I have a lovely young woman here with me today uh, by the name of Miss Emily Maltby. Hi, Emily.
0: Hi, Matt. How are you today? I'm so good. <laughs> you look good.
1: Emily is currently wearing a baseball cap. Mm-hmm. That says in blue. Does anyone still wear a hat?
0: Yeah.
1: If you don't know what lyric that is referring to, you're listening
0: to the wrong podcast.
1: the wrong fucking <laughs> podcast. John and I on this pod on a normal episode are like if Trixie and Katya talked exclusively about theater and anything else because sure. she just got about theater bottoming Jesse Mueller like it's all it's all the there. real the the big three the, the big three and I mean honestly. If you can't get from Jesse Mueller to the topic of bottoming, I don't even want to know you. Again, you're listening to the, the rock, rock podcast. podcast. <laughs> um, Emily is the director choreographer. Uh, she most recently had her work seen in New York at City Center yeah. in Evita. Uh, choreographer, yes? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, last year, the production of Lolita, My Love. Correct. At Mufti. That was the name yeah, of the series? At yeah, at York, yeah. Uh, yeah, at the York Theatre Company. And Han, I've I've recently researched just to like be wow, on top of this. This is impressive. I, I, thank you. Uh, also, has worked on Anastasia, correct? With Anastasia. Uh, what else? Give me some other ones. I
0: think most importantly, uh, I went to my senior prom with you. Oh yeah, which I feel like is probably my most. Important credit.
1: You are the second person on this pod who I took to their to their prom. Honestly, I'm offended that I'm the second. Well, only, not, you're not the second. Well, you are the second in terms of the timeline. But uh, yes, also second in terms of this pod. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, you and Ali Gordon. I'm just like... Yeah, I actually did know that. Yes. Um, in fact, I think... I don't know if I would have been invited to your prom if I had not been such a success at Ali Gordon's the year before. I think like that was the out of town tryout
0: for the Broadway production. Oh, wow! So I was, I was Broadway. You were Broadway, yes. That's great. I'm honored. I mean, we had a grand old time. We had such a good time. I uh, remember dancing so hard, (laughs) so hard, and then I remember the next day one of the like, you know, like popular girls in school, those girls, came up to me and went, "Wow." You win the award for having had most fun at prom. And I was like, correct. Yeah. I don't like any of you people, but I really like Matt, so we're going to have a lot of fun. And uh, we did. We did. We had a blast. We like full, like, tore it up. And we everyone did. was way too cool for that.
1: Mm hmm. I think what helped was that uh, we didn't give two fucks.
0: Uh, none at all.
1: None at all. Do you, we? And it was at a club, wasn't it? Yeah.
0: It was at. I. I I don't know if it was C L O, but it felt like it was C L O. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, it was at a club because I grew up in the city, and that's where New York private schools have their prom, Same. At nightclubs. And yeah, I, I had been at that school for 13 years. I mm-hmm. went K through 12, and this was the end of my senior year, and I was piecing you
1: out. <laughs> you truly were. I was so ready to leave. Yeah, you went to Dalton. I did. Yes, I saw one of your earliest choreographed works a production of Twelfth Night? You saw that? Yes, I saw that. Wow. I'm, you invited me, I'm pretty I'm sure. I'm sure I did, yeah. I don't think I just showed up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... We were in a feud at the time, but I a, showed up to make peace. Yeah,
0: it was. A, it's a hot ticket to get. So, I did, yeah. I choreographed a bunch. That was, like, when I started choreographing things. Mm-hmm. Um, I choreographed a middle school play when I was in uh, high school. Mm-hmm. The first show was Half a Sixpence. Wow. Yeah. That... But- that's brave of Dalton to do. Well, well, we'll we'll come we'll circle back around to this because it will come back to the main topic. But the Dalton Middle School is bold. I just went to go see because I'm still friends with my middle school drama teacher. Their middle school production of *Les Mis*. It was the full <laughs> *Les Mis*. Full
1: *Mis*. Like, full *Les Mis*. Full *Les Mis*.
0: <laughs> like I sat there for three hours watching <laughs> sixth, seventh, and eighth graders fumble their way through
1: *Les Mis*. That is the most. Gorgeous thing I've ever heard. It
0: was it was spectacular. And they have previously done in this middle school Sunday in the Park with George, <laughs> which we'll, <come laughs> which we'll back, get to. Which we'll get to. Um, Animal Farm the musical. Jesus Christ. Uh, like they really just they go for it. Yeah. And so um, half a sixpence was the first one. And then the next year the school was doing like a Shakespeare year. So the middle school and high school were all doing Shakespeare. And uh, the high school did Twelfth Night, the play, but with Burt Backrack music like, yes, infused I do remember into that. it. So I did the choreography for that. And then I also did the choreography for an original musical based on The Tempest. There it is.
1: I do remember. I remember absolutely nothing about that production of Twelfth Night except for the song um, I'll Never Fall In Love Again and sure. I remember three girls sat down to like bop their heads at the beginning that's the only image I had yeah I there
0: were that. there were like three girls who like were like the backup singer dancer yes. yes. I mean yes. I do remember all that. high school. So but... in
1: case you haven't realized, folks, Emily and I do go way back. We've known <laughs> each other for quite a long time. <laughs> That's true. Uh,
0: your sister, Charlotte, has also been on the pod. I know. I feel like I'm very late to the party. All my friends have been on this podcast. My I sister. Know. Well, to be your fair. Your other prom dates. My I, other prom I dates. Just...
1: It's, it's, you're just too intimidating. And like, actually, I'm to be perfectly sure. honest, I was going to ask you back in 2019, but Evita was happening. And I was like, yeah. I'm not going to text her about this while she's doing vita. Yeah. That would have been stupid. Like, I probably be, just would have responded i was no. deeply
0: underwater it,
1: it, it literally would have been like texting you in the middle of childbirth to me like hey i want to grab a coffee like <laughs> no it, it did feel like childbirth yeah i'm not gonna that's i understand that so i'm not gonna do that but yes we go way back so emily what made you say to yourself i want to be in charge of the shows i don't want to be amongst the muggle actors i want to tell the muggle actors what to do
0: I wouldn't call them muggles. I, I I think muggles are non-theater people.
1: That is very true. Yeah. Squibs. They're squibs. <laughs> the
0: squibs. Um, you know, I think I, I, I grew up around people making theater. My dad's a writer and director. And I think I just saw that part of the process. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. And I loved, like, I always equated my love of making theater to, like, honestly, like, English class. Mm-hmm. Like, I loved taking a piece of literature and like reading it deciding what i thought it was about writing an essay about it you know finding the evidence supporting it and kind of and i once i realized theater was sort of retrofitting that was mm-hmm. sort of like you got to especially if you're making something brand new you got to say this is the story i want to tell and i'm going to support it with this evidence and i'm going mm-hmm. to you know so i that was just the way my brain functioned mm-hmm. and i and i loved that part of the process and i loved like understanding. Oh, if I'm telling this story then I need to attach this in act 1 and I I just I loved the puzzle of it. Um so it kind of happened very quickly. I I I was a dancer and uh I remember saying like, "Oh, it's really strange when I listen to this song like I just I see people dancing in my head." Mm. Um and my parents were like, well, "You're a choreographer." And um
1: I feel I have an image of your parents saying it more like, "Yeah," You're a choreographer. Yeah, it, like. it
0: kind of it, it kind of was. I, I I and my my parents like especially my dad, having gone through his own version of this as a child, mm-hmm. like was was like instantly supportive. He was like, "Great, we're going to get you a studio, and you're going to ask some friends from your dance classes and like just try it, just do it, and see what happens." Mm-hmm. And um, I choreographed like three little dances. The head of the dance school found out that I had been doing this on the weekends, like one every Saturday and she put the pieces in our recital. And that was the first time I had seen something I made performed. And I was like, and that was it. Yeah. And that was it. And that was the only thing I wanted to do forever. I started choreographing, um, you know, the middle school plays as we talked about the high school plays. And then it just was so, it was such a like hop, skip and a jump from there to, uh, to directing because Mm -hmm. it was all the same thing. It was all just like a diagnosing the storytelling and figuring out how to do it dance was a vocabulary that i had so Mm -hmm. it started that way but then it became directing it became conceiving whole ideas and so then when i was applying to schools i wanted to find a school that would let me do that and Mm -hmm. i went to northwestern which has like just so much incredible student theater Mm -hmm. i feel like i majored in student theater there's like you know 60 plus productions a year um Which was great. I mean, like, obviously I did a lot of department stuff and obviously my classes were amazing, but I just got so much experience making stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and then like my senior year, I did, we have this thing called the dolphin show, which is in an 1100 seat theater. And I directed and choreographed 42nd street. And it's like, I did, I got to work on that scale with 36 people, a 28 person band, um,
1: 28 persons, not a band, sweetheart. That's a full-blown orchestra.
0: That's true. I don't, that's very true. <laughs> I guess I'm just used to referring to it as a band because nothing's I mean, orchestra. I guess
1: also once you worked at City Center, where, like, that is 35 pieces yeah. the minimum, you're like, I mean, anything under that's a band to me. Yeah. <laughs> truly. Truly. I know. I would sit there
0: in our in our Vita rehearsals and be like, this is the last time I will ever hear an
1: orchestra this big. <laughs> ever again. Um, is Have you done a production... I mean, I'm sure I'm sure there are many, but like any productions that you have helmed, that you look back on, and you're like that was either exactly what I w- wanted to do with it, or like the close as close as I
0: could get to what I wanted to do with it. Yeah, I mean, I think hopefully all of them are as close as I could get, um, but I don't know. Um, like, I think um, I think I'm trying to think of which is the best. Version. like professionally or in school whatever um, I did like I'll t- I'll talk about it being in school like I did my 42nd street what we did in school mm-hmm. like it was it was the first time that I had ever like like conceived a whole new version of something seen it all the way through. Um, and had the support of, you know, fellow students, but, yeah. but had the support of the people around 150 students work on the show to put it together. And they were all working towards one singular vision. And I had never, obviously at 21, like had, <laughs> I mean, chop, 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 chop <laughs> had a team like that. And, and that was the first time I realized like what you could do if you were clear and were, had a clear vision and were mm-hmm. efficient, um, So, yeah, I would say that was the first time. Who are some
1: directors working right now that you admire?
0: Um,
1: Or choreographers, or both?
0: Yeah. uh, Marianne Elliott. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's sort of, like, it for me right now.
1: She's definitely got it going on.
0: Yeah, and she has been for me for a really long time. I saw her um, St. Joan at the National when I was 16, and I was, like, done. I was done. It was the most thrilling thing I'd ever seen in Mm -hmm. my life. Um, I just think she's the—she is— the best at melding like getting brilliant performances out of her actors but but actually reinventing what the 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 actual thing of theater can be for every production like she diagnoses what the story is Mm -hmm. she looks at the tools of theater and she sort of recreates it with every show um and she uses all of the different elements in a way that i just find really really inspiring um a lot of people. I'm like a huge Matthew Bourne fan in terms of choreography. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm i I'm like a big storytelling dance person.
1: As well, you should be when you're choreographing for theater.
0: That's true, but I, I like, <laughs> I'm very drawn to people who yeah. are like, are like masters of narrative.
1: That's also not shade to you. That is actually shade to some choreographers working in theater today who don't do
0: that. Yeah, I mean, I. I in a lot of ways, like, and I don't say this like facetiously, like I don't think I'm a very good choreographer in the sense of like dance. Mm-hmm. Like, like put me in a room and be like, here's a beautiful piece of music, make up some dance. Like, I will fail yeah. miserably. I, I I don't think of dance as an aesthetic thing. I think of dance as a really really potent storytelling tool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sort of at a loss to create yeah. steps. Like I, they're the last thing I think of. And uh, so so people who kind of take dance and and like re invent what it can do and how it can use like I mean Mm -hmm. obviously like you've got Stephen Hoggett who's doing like his own thing but it's so story driven Mm -hmm. Um, I just think there's like there's a lot of cool stuff happening in terms of narrative dance and that's where I live and
1: what do you say well this is actually a wonderful transition into our obsession today Mm -hmm. what do you say is very specific to what Sondheim always talks about with writing in I mean obviously in his books he has the line God is in the details but he has this uh interview that was in Sondheim on Sondheim, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you saw. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he talks about how he can't just, like, write a song. You can't just tell him, like, hey, Stephen, like, write a love song. Mm-hmm. He's like, I can't just do that. Um, he's like, I can try, but I'm bad at it. He says, "Would you know, tell me uh, write a song for a woman who's sitting at a bar. And I go, okay, well, what's she wearing? What's she drinking? What time of day is it? And with that, he can come up with his own stuff. Totally, And that is what truly good theater writers do.
0: Yeah, for sure. And like when it comes to any, especially when it comes to dance, just because I'm really turned off by dance that seems to be there for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, or dance that seems to be there because like now we should have a dance number. Mm-hmm. Um I'm just, I'm very turned off by it. So I, I like, I have people that I work with that joke that I'm the only choreographer they know that like hates dance. Cause I'll mm-hmm. just be like, no, they like, I, they shouldn't dance here. Or like, I'm, I don't think it's a big dance moment. I think it's really small. I think it's just this. And, mm-hmm. and I'll really resist and I'll really push because I just, I'm like really turned off by that.
1: But that's truly what some of the best choreographers do. I mean, Jerome Robbins really does that all the time or does that, did that, uh, he, there was a whole, there was going to be a whole ballet at the end of Gypsy I'm, I'm sure you know about this oh, right, that yeah. was supposed to be what ended up being Rose's turn and he was like planning it all out and you know this was in a show that had very little dance this was going to be like his ballet and they're planning it out and he's like no there shouldn't be dance here and like for Jerome Robbins to say that yeah yeah so you're in good company babe. well
0: thank you thank you
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's what we do here we compliment our guests <laughs> over and over again so they'll come back
0: Billy I beg to differ with you How do you mean you're the top
1: So, let's move along, because Great. we're going to talk about this for a while, I'm just assuming, knowing the two of us. Sure. Emily has an obsession, everybody. I do. What's your obsession, Emily?
0: It is the um, seminal Broadway musical, Sunday in the Park with George. Yes. As performed for the Dalton Middle School. No. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: How did you come to this? Is actually, I, I know this, this but for a, the listeners, it's a good story. How did you come upon Something in the Park with George? At what age specifically?
0: So, um, I grew up in a very theatery family, mm-hmm. and we would listen to show tunes in the car mm-hmm. all the time. And my parents played a lot of Sondheim. But we listened to uh, Bernadette's Sondheim, et cetera, album. The okay. one where she's
1: Jesus on the cross on the cover. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And I didn't understand, like, the physics of it, because it's, like, the light and, like, her boobs, and it's it's very confusing. But uh, yeah. anyway. She
1: defies physics. That's true. She uh,
0: truly defies aging. Um, yeah. But so they would play all these, you know, little night music, whatever. And, and I guess we would just kind of talk through it or whine or ask mm-hmm. to listen to Disney music or whatever. And and for some reason, when they put on Sunday in the Park, I, I just, like, shut up. Mm-hmm. And so my parents were like, great, oh, this works. So they would, they would play it over and over again. And, um one day my dad said he saw me like playing outside and I was like singing one of the songs and he Mm -hmm. was like oh I think she she really likes this and I have a memory of sitting in the back of a car and the song move on came on and I was sitting in the back of the car just crying just like sobbing crying and my parents turned around and being like are you okay and I was like the song. And so they were like, okay, I think she, she must be, by the way, I'm, I'm about uh, five or six years old.
1: Yeah. No, that's, that's the important thing to remember here, yeah. guys.
0: Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm like five or six. Um, and then at one point they decided, okay, she needs to see the show. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, we listen to it all the time, but the, the filmed version, the like great performances version mm-hmm. hadn't been released yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, my dad is friendly with Sondheim. So he asked him if there was a copy of it that he could give us and um he he i was gonna say burned he recorded on two vhs's like Mm -hmm. taped over something he had whatever act one signing in the park with georgia like he scribbled on act two and so Mm -hmm. he sent us these like two vhs's of the video and i watched it was six years old i felt madly in love and Mm -hmm. i wrote sondheim a letter about it um And I said in this letter that um, I loved Sunday in the Park so much and um, I thought Dot made a mistake uh, and that she shouldn't have left George and she should have known that George was meant to do art and not to take her to the Follies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, and then I said, even um, like, I think, and then I said the song, uh, the song Move On makes me cry because I understand Dot and what she's been through in her life at the age of <laughs> six <laughs> um, <laughs> and how uh, she may have regretted her decision, but she was happy with her life and George oh. had to move on too. And then I wrote, even though it makes me cry, I really love the song. Um, and I said some other things and then I, I signed it sincerely, Emily Malpe, age six. Mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you my parents were like, you need to write age six. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I got a really beautiful letter back, um, and both of which are framed in my mom's apartment. But uh, the letter back said, basically was like, well, unfortunately, like to stay with George would have made Dot miserable. I mean, he basically like, defended the choice. Yeah. And then he ended it by saying, your letter made me cry as much as move on makes you cry. Aww. Which was very nice. Yeah,
1: it is, guys, it is truly one of those things... That just you look at it and you go, Oh, so I was shit at six because Emily <laughs> Mulphy understood so much of Sunday in the Park with George at age six. I don't
0: know why. I don't know what it was about it. Like I-
1: Well, so would you say that Sunday in the Park is your favorite musical? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um that is something that I've come to think about lately when we when we say something is our favorite, it is not us saying objectively, I think this is the best thing. Written in this field, it's more. This is what I personally connect yeah. to. Yeah, it's what you spark um, with. Yeah, and like obviously, when we say it's our favorite, we're, we think it's good. Um, I mean, I would. There are things that I like because they're bad. Like I would never tell you that Teen Witch is a good movie, but goddamn, do I love it!
0: Yeah, Grease Two is an amazing. Oh my film. god!
1: Cool, 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 cool writer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it's it, it, there when we say favorite. It's you know, it's that undefinable connection you yeah. know like something just happens it's chemical and you're just linked to it forever yeah um, you're very lucky that you found it at such young age <laughs> so, and that it it's lasted this long I
0: know uh, it's something like kind of chemical like so I I, I I obviously kept revisiting it as I was growing up it was mm-hmm. the first show I directed in college um, brave yeah, I I like to start off real simple. Um but but I remember going to see I've seen probably like 6 or 7 different productions of it at this point, but I remember mm-hmm. most recently going to see the the uh City Center Gala with mm-hmm. um Jake gyllenhaal and annalee Ashford. And um I hadn't seen a production probably since the Broadway revival. The
1: one that transferred from the Manhattan. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, and so I just I don't think I had like Sat in a room and like heard the full score in an and mm-hmm. and the set literally like lights down and it goes bum 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 and mm-hmm. I just started crying mm-hmm. like like re- like legitimate like tears and to the point where my friend was like Are you okay yeah. and I, I I cried through the whole thing like I just kept crying mm-hmm. and it was it was it, at that point you realize like, we're not talking about like someone sitting there watching a piece of art and being moved okay. by it we're talking about like a, some sort of like visceral connection like yes. whatever wavelength that show vibrates on I vibrate on the same frequency yes. and so it like it just we're like we're tied
1: yeah forever and always <laughs> Yeah. light
0: color and light there's only color and light yellow and white just blue and yellow and
1: white Look at the Let's try to uh, summarize what Sunday in the Park with George is about in a nutshell, like as, as shortly as we can so we can move on to the fun stuff, the deconstructions.
0: Okay. okay. Uh, Sunday in the Park with George is um, the story of the artist George Seurat, mm-hmm. um, And Act One follows him creating the painting Sunday Afternoon on the Island of the Grand Chate. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it also... Uh, is seen through sort of the matrix of his relationship with his mistress and muse, a woman named Dot, um, and the sort of ups and downs of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end of act one, he completes the painting. And then act two, uh, takes place a hundred years later where his great great grandson, great grandson, yes. um, is a like 1980s, uh, installation artist and is really struggling with sort of artist block and having to deal with like, getting a commission from this museum and and just not being able to understand how to make art in this world uh and he goes back to the island to celebrate the centennial of the painting and uh has a moment has a moment yeah (laughs) Has a real moment where dot comes to him and kind of gives him the inspiration that he needs that was very succinct well done um I don't want to say it's gained a cult following, because its fan base is
1: decently large in yeah. the, since it opened. It's, it's,
0: most art, it's most artists' favorite musical, or most mm-hmm. artists' favorite, or, in, con, like, like, deeply connected to yeah,
1: the musical. Uh, it's most artists' favorite, like, representation of the process of making it.
0: Yeah, art. I think, like, especially if you work in theater, everybody has some sort of connection to finishing the hat, mm-hmm. to, you know... Just the yeah. the story. Yeah,
1: and because the two acts have the big time jump and seem to some people like vastly different stories, Into the Woods has been criticized for this as well. Some people say well, you just need to do Act One. You don't need Act no. Two. To which I want to roll out the carpet from Miss Emily Moppy <laughs> to explain why that's stupid.
0: Well, I, the show's the show's about Act Two. Like yeah. like Act One is the is the intro to a thesis that is made in act two Mm -hmm. Um, and that actually like I when I was directing the show in college I I wrote Sondheim another email and said I'm going to direct the show and and, uh, could I like talk to you about it and he said yes which was incredible and i went over to his house and i was like all of you know i was a sophomore in college i was about to be a sophomore in college so i was 19 i guess um and i sat down with him and i asked him a billion questions and and one of them was that i said why do people have such an issue with act two and he said he said i don't i don't know the the thesis of the show is act two yeah um and the show the show is about white a blank page or canvas Mm -hmm. and so you you can't it, like, you can't understand... I mean, the creative process happens in in Act 1, but the story of Dot and George doesn't complete until Act
1: yeah. 2. Yeah, that is something that has always bugged me when people say you just need to do Act 1. I'm like, th- nothing has been resolved by the end of Act no. 1. There's so much left uncovered.
0: Well, that's, uncovered. that's the brilliance of the show. Uh, um, and it's another thing that um, Sondheim has said, is, like, the show is not about and this goes back to our conversation about storytelling and context, like the show is not about art Mm. at all. The show is a love story. The show is about a man and a woman and their relationship, which, and the man happens to be an artist. So we talk about art a lot, Mm -hmm. but move on is the culmination of the, of the show. Mm -hmm. It is, it is the relationship between these two people. It is the moment when she can give back to him, what he gave to her. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the end of act one, they, they part, ways yeah. like it's it's so not not resolved at all
1: no nothing about their uh about their relationship is unresolved. resolved i guess because people do think that the show is about art and i will disagree for a second that it's not about art at all i think that there is a part of it sure and ironically one of the themes of the show is something that i will relate to when it comes to sometime about the show uh which is that once the art is created like the artist can tell you about intention, they can tell you about so many other things, but it officially stops being the artists yeah. after once once it's out there in the world. Yeah. Um, there's a story that I learned—I'm going all over the place, I apologize—but uh, there's a story I was told in college by my uh, Languages of the Stage teacher, Courtney O'Connor, that I am obsessed with, and it was this sci-fi writer, prolific sci-fi writer, most likely Ray Bradbury, let's be real. She didn't say the name, but I'm like, it was probably him—was... Asked to give a lecture at, the, at a very prestigious university, let's say Yale, probably wasn't, but let's just say, and he found out while he was there that there's this teacher doing a whole course on his work. So he's like, "Oh, this is interesting. I'm gonna, like sneak in in the back and like see what they have to say about me." So he sneaks into the back of this like giant lecture hall, that sits in the back row, and the professor's going on about one of the books and is saying certain themes that pop up in the story. And he raises his hand, he goes, um, that's not what the book's about. And he's like feeling all holier than that. And the professor's like, how would you know? And he goes, well, I wrote it. And without missing a beat, the professor goes, what makes you think just because you wrote it, you know more about it than I do? And it's like, it, I wouldn't say it's an entirely accurate statement of everything in terms of art, but it, yeah. it has that theme of like, yes, you wrote it and you can tell me what your intentions were and that can yeah. inform other people's opinions. But once it's created... It's yeah, no longer belongs to you.
0: It, it's true. There's like an alchemy that happens yeah. when, which is something that
1: I realized as a, so I was rewatching Sunday in the Park last night to prepare for this episode because much as I thought I understood that show as a teenager, um, I truly didn't. I loved it. I definitely connected to it, but the, I, there are still things about it I don't, I can't grapple, uh, even if I find it very moving. Uh, and one is it's hot up here, which was like. I always thought it was just this nice comedic moment. And like, yes, on a purely musical theater scale, it brings the audience back. It sort of settles them back in. It's a very funny song, all about the figures in the painting and how sitting in this painting for years and years and years is stifling and and uncomfortable and making jokes about the actual painting. Jules' cigar never goes out. um, Things like that. Like, look who's talking, sitting in the shade. But it also is... I don't know, for me rewatching it, I was struck by how these people who did not ask to be immortalized or most yeah. of them didn't ask to be immortalized are now officially immortalized and whatever george's intention was with the painting is irrelevant now because this is what it's become yeah. for them as these figures
0: yeah There's always this in- interesting thing for me in act one with regard to like all of the sort of side characters which mm-hmm. is that we never see them except through George's eyes we yes. only see the parts of their lives that he sees and presumably they have these other lives. They have full other lives. Mm-hmm. And and you know, we watch like this weird affair take place and several affairs. Lots take of place, affairs. So That's many right. affairs. And we watch, you know, all of these like kind of fun little and the the Louise is such a little brat and the mom's mm. running and the glasses and, you know, there's so much going on. But there's this whole other life that they lead. But an artist has this like magical box he has this lens and when Mm -hmm. you cross it you become a figure whether or not you want to and a lot of them don't want to the boatman doesn't want to they don't want to be immortalized in any way um but he kind of takes that upon himself and he puts them in this box um and they become what they were in that moment whether they like it or not for all to see Mm -hmm. um And it's that's always such an interesting moment to me. So interesting that when I directed the show in college, I I really wanted to like expand the um, the box Mm -hmm. and like have basically like the main stage be be George's world and Mm -hmm. then have like these aisles and these other parts because we did it in this like, you know, collegey box room space box room space <laughs> you know it's like hard. a black box no it okay. wasn't even that it was literally a shack it like it was just like this like literally a box room anyway a box room it wasn't gonna, a black box i'm going to steal that a box room it was just like a, a like a like a open a small space fantastic with poles everywhere a theatrical casket yeah that we like painted all white um but i wanted to see like just like a little glimpse of like their lives continue mm-hmm. beyond, you know, I wanted to see some of the things just and then there was the sense that like what they came to life, like they came into color. Mm-hmm. But but I just always thought that was so interesting that we only ever get to see, you know, And it's right at the top of the show. He, he doesn't like the tree. He erases it and it mm-hmm. goes away. Yeah, we are seeing the world through his eyes mm-hmm. and the world through his eyes looks very specific and they're all they all fall into these archetypes
1: yeah um which is something that i truly realized while watching it again because the acting of act one in the original production so sunday in the park was filmed with the original company right before it closed uh the acting style of the first act is very theatrical and presentational and Mm. you realize that it is on purpose uh that how these people are on stage in these scenes may not necessarily be how they are all the time. That's just, as you said, that is how George is seeing them. That is how he's able to sort of box them into what he needs them to be for his painting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And as you said, some of them did not ask to be in the painting. But it's sort of what else can George do? Like, this is what he knows how to do. This is this is all he wants to do. Mm-hmm. So, like, he has no control over what inspires him.
0: Yeah, and he's trying to create harmony. Yeah, harmony.
1: Harmony. Uh, question for you something that i've always wondered so there are te- technically speaking it's a quartet of characters but one of them is not really a character and i think you know where i'm going with this the two celestes and then the soldier and the silent soldier yeah the two celestes who are just try- constantly trying to get dick uh <laughs> which is one of my favorite i do love also that james lapine as a director can find the humor in just about anything yeah um he often says, when you're directing Into the Woods, find the drama in Act 1 and find the humor in Act 2 and the thing will be cohesive. And its I'm always reminded of how funny he made Sunday in the Park with George with the actors. like just so funny. All the stage business. So when the two Celeste are trying to catch the soldier's attention by quote-unquote fishing, yeah. and they're like, we have a fish. And they're just like, it turns into a porno. They're like, ah, the fish is <laughs> tugging. Ah. It's so funny. But my question for you is... Our soldier and un, and and mute soldier were they were they fucking <laughs> were they fucking no no okay I don't think so maybe that's just my gay brain being like I think there's a little I gay mean, there maybe they were in the army together
0: that's true to
1: quote Celeste number one he's been in a war <laughs>
0: <laughs> he has been in a war um I, I maybe
1: uh, just because
0: again that's maybe one of the things that George never sees
1: exactly well so the thing that always struck me about their relationship and again it's something that I just am reminded of as I rewatched it especially during it's hot up here when the soldier because of the two soldiers only one of them is a real character uh, played by Robert Westernberg in the original he sings he acts and in the original production the second soldier is a cardboard cutout yeah um, other productions have done different things the Broadway revival in the early 2000s it was a projection because yeah. the whole thing was projected the last one with Jake Gyllenhaal they actually had an actor be mute and play him um I don't know. It was. It's. He sings to him, and it's hot up here. It's good to be together again. And Celeste number two says, "See, I told you they were odd." And in my mind, I'm like, I feel like Celeste number two has an inkling that they might have like, if they're not necessarily gay, there's some like bond there that is somewhat homoerotic. And Celeste number one is just so dick focused. She's like, I'm not noticing anything. You make a compelling argument. Thank you. And maybe I'm maybe I'm just totally reading into it, but that's just something that I've always wondered. And again, like, end I mean, of act one, when she says, and he was so odd, and the soldier's like, he's not odd. And part of it is maybe self-hatred, because, like, he's that same bit of odd. I don't know. Wow. I'm totally reading into
0: it. Wow, yeah. you might be onto something.
1: <laughs> the one thing that I'm onto with this show. I feel like there's so much about it that I'm a dum-dum about. I actually remember um, senior year of high school... Our English teacher... So Sunday in the Park with George came back to Broadway our senior year of high school. Yes. And it was very important, and we went to go see it. Not you and I, but my English class went to go see it. Because our English teacher usually would play the original Broadway company's video for classes, and I just—I would remember classes above me every year just, like, complain about it, be like, oh, it's so stupid, it's so boring, and I was just, like, so excited to finally see it. Um, and then our second semester, we had to take a work that we had read or seen in class and adapted it to something else. Mm-hmm. And so I... You wanted to
0: make a movie.
1: I t- yeah, I stupidly chose to turn Sunday in the Park of Georgia into a screenplay.
0: I remember this! You sent it to me. I did
1: send it to you, which was stupid, because it wasn't a good screenplay. I truly didn't understand a lot of it, and I just tried to make it visually appealing. And I remember asking you what you thought, and you were, you were very kind. You're like, you make some very interesting choices. <laughs> um, I'm so pretentious. No, you weren't, like, it wasn't mean. I think... It it was your kind of way to being like, there are some things you do that I like and some things where I don't think you understand what the scene is. And you're, again, I mean, without saying it.
0: the do I know? You're, like... you're
1: the one who understood the beauty of Move On at age six.
0: I don't know. Sure. But...
1: I, was, I was trying to be, you know, Belle and Dorothy at age six. That's what I was doing with my artistic integrity. But... Yeah, I just I I tried to do that, and I think back about some of the things I did in that screenplay, and I'm like, oh, I really didn't understand what it could be a cool
0: movie. I mean, I would watch it.
1: I think visually it'd be very interesting. I think the show is very theatrically bound. Yeah, the truth is, if you were to make it into a movie, you would have to try to intersperse the two acts together, and it's hard to do that because it's much more emotionally potent separate. But yeah, you yeah. can't really do that time jump halfway through and have audiences stick with you in a movie.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but those are like bold choices you have to make when you adapt something from one medium to another. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> I often say if Mis- if they really wanted to make *Lame Miz into a good, good movie, they would have cut one day more. Because it's a brilliant act one finale, but it does it does not propel the plot one bit.
0: Yeah, I mean... We could do a separate podcast about this
1: movie. We totally could. It's just like that's that's a hill I'm willing to die and die on. Like,
0: though, I I have to say the the placement of do you hear the people saying yes. in the film was brilliant. I think there's. It's there, the first time I've ever understood who General Lamarck was and why it mattered. There that are, he was dead. There's there are choices in that movie that I think are wonderful. Yeah, there um, are some storytelling choices in particular. Yeah, that well, are really something
1: smart. that that movie did that I thought was correct was. In a musical on, on stage, usually like a character has to sing for a bit before we become invested in their story. Case in point, Sunday in the Park with George, Dot has her whole opening number. And then we become invested in what she does after that. In a movie musical, we kind of need to see more of their story first before we sit alone with them for three minutes to mm-hmm. sing. That's so putting out Dream of the Dream after Lovely Ladies as opposed to After at the End of the Day... I think works in the movie because by that point we have spent enough time with Fontaine that we're willing to hear her sing alone for four minutes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I thought there was a lot, I actually thought like the, the screenplay of it was, was very smart. I mean, yeah.
1: If you read the screenplay of the Les Mis movie, it reads much better than the movie played out. I remember reading the screen, Writing for lovely ladies, and I remember thinking like, "Oh, this scene's gonna be tits," and then they yeah. filmed it. I was like, "No, it's
0: not." Yeah, I mean, those are the kinds of things. The first time I saw, we're so sidetracked, but the first time I saw whatever, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> the first time I saw the Miss movie, I actually. I actually loved it not not for any of the reasons why i didn't love it like Mm -hmm. like the singing and the whatever but but i just was so i thought the storytelling was so smart in Mm -hmm. terms of like literally just structurally what they did to the story yeah structurally i just thought it was so smart that i was like like that's the stuff i geek out on that i was like oh my god do you hear the people sing so active as this like protest song while Mm -hmm. they're they're like singing literally during the the parade during his funeral and Mm -hmm. i just thought all that was so smart and then of course like there's all the other stuff but
1: yeah. Well, I mean, there's also a bunch of stuff that they cut from the screenplay in the movie. Just I guess and making it...
0: Cosette like adding that song. For him and Cosette, like, making Cosette the f- the focus of yeah. his whole... Like, made so much sense. Yeah. And Well, and that's...
1: Cosette is really the focal point of the novel, and there's a reason why she's always been on... Young Cosette, anyway, has been the poster for the yeah. show and then for the movie. She is sort of, like, the hope, in a way, yeah. that the that all that misery comes out of. Totally. Um, totally. And I always... And that was
0: clearer in the movie, I think.
1: Yes, agreed. Um, I mean, some casting choices that I think were... Weird and technically speaking, some camera choices that were weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get the reason to sing live, but I think there needs to be a balance of the whisper sing
0: and the belty sing. Uh, it's also an opera, like yeah. it, you can't you can't try and attach naturalism to it. No, I've, it is like the most like deeply unnaturalistic piece of theater. Yes. Ever.
1: Um. So <laughs> y- yes, because in the last revival of Lamez, that definitely like was in sync with the movie in terms of like the naturalism for me shined shined shone a light shone a light shined a light shone shown <laughs> let's just say it shone a light it sh- it showed them a light on how so many moments in that show don't necessarily need to be sung uh, but be, it's well, it's an yeah. opera. and It's larger than life. Exactly. It's purposefully larger you than need, life. And you need to present it as such. You Something that to. the original production was so brilliant at was keeping things moving, keeping things grand, and having a wonderful combination of naturalism, but also theatricality yeah. and these um, impressionist brushstrokes almost in terms of the visuals and the staging. So everything felt like it made sense in that world to be singing all the time. Yeah. It just, it felt right. When you add naturalism and on top of that, like, ensemble members ad living while people are singing.
0: There's so much conflict and so much tension between the form and the content. Content Mm -hmm. dictates form in the immortal words of Stephen Sondheim.
1: Which brings us back to our obsession. So, I don't, I don't think you listened to any of the podcasts before you came on today, correct? Correct. Don't, there's no need to be ashamed about it. So many of our guests haven't. Uh, But, You can tell when guests haven't listened because they'll say things like, oh my God, we're so off topic right now. I'm like, welcome to the pod. We go off topic a lot. Sure. Um, This is actually the most on topic we've been in a while in regards to an obsession. So congrats. Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll come back to Sunday now. Okay. Um, Yeah. So what is something about Sunday when you're seeing a production of it that you... Not necessarily look out for, but is an indicator to you of whether this production is successful or not.
0: That's a really good question. I mean, first of all, I'm in no way the, the arbiter of whether or not a production of Sunday in the Park is successful. I think everybody has an opinion about it. But I, to me, it's a couple things. Like yeah, that, I, that, that that PC statement aside, Emily. <laughs> well, I just well, be honest, bitch. Uh, I think that I, I mean I think there's so much about the show that's conceptual. And mm-hmm. like, for example, the Broadway revival. I thought the the like. Visuals of it were absolutely genius, brilliant, beautiful, magnificent. Which one? The most recent one? No the the um, the Menier. Yeah the yes. the Sam uh, Bunchock. Bunchock, thank yeah. you uh, production, which I saw both in London and here. Um, yeah, like I, I, just thought that was like such a brilliant way to tell the, the the thematic and the visual and the and the artist story. I think for me, which
1: also just want to make sure because not some of our listeners are young, so I just want to make sure they ah, understand what the visuals were.
0: Sure, it was basically in like a white three D projection box, mm-hmm. and and there was rear projection on the on all of the surfaces, and it started off as a like he would say white and they drew a horizon line across all three walls mm-hmm. um and then you he you, you watched like the 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 set was like sketched in in pencil and over the course of the act it got more filled in first mm-hmm. it was like bright color and then it was dotted and then it and then by the end of the act it was completed but you sort of over the course of the act watched the painting be yes. finished as the set box um and then there was this brilliant moment in Act two after its hot up here when it transitioned to where the paint the painting was projected on the back wall and slowly uh, like sort of zoomed out and and as it did you saw people pass in front of it over the next hundred years and and the, they were sort of black silhouettes um, but there you watched their costumes change from mm-hmm. 1883 to 1983 and like you just
1: went to the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s it was very cool I'm uh, so glad you brought up that transition because when I saw it on Broadway, I was like, "I think this is the best transition to the time jump I'll ever see a production ever. of Sunday." It too. was it was
0: magnificent. I mean, the, the visuals were truly like I think probably the best physical iteration of the show I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. That being said, though, to me, what makes a successful Sunday in the Park is obviously landing all that stuff. But to me, it's the it's it really rests in dot but it's 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 the relationship between the two of them mm-hmm. and i um like if i i need to see especially dot both of them i feel like george in, in a weird way is an easier part to land mm. dot to me like she needs to bleed like she yeah. needs to like cut herself open and bleed and like and look, just leave everything on the floor because she is she's someone who leads with her heart so much she sort of has a youthful um almost childish naivete about the world in act one. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says it in act two. And it's my favorite line in the show. I thought the world could be perfect. I thought the world could be perfect, but I was wrong. And it's, it's just so magnificent and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not sad and it's not wrong and it's not, it's just a growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and she really, really loved this man and she really believed that it, that was enough and mm-hmm. it wasn't. And she had to learn that that is what life is. And mm-hmm. I, I just, there's like, if she is not, if she's not firing on all cylinders, if she's not like completely leaving everything she has on the floor, especially in we do not belong together, I-, I feel like the show really lacks. And I feel like the two of them just need to be like magnetically locked to each other. Yeah, I could look at him forever. I could look at her forever. Like if that, the whole show lives in the, in those words. Yeah, because she says what made it so right together is what made it all wrong, and like that's what made it so right is they were just so in love with each other. No one is you. There we agree, but others will do, George No one is you, no one can be But no one is me, George No one is me, we do not belong together And we'll never belong
1: But... Yeah, well... And- Some of the most frustrating and most amazing conflict in drama is when two people are saying the exact same thing, but in completely different languages, and neither one of them realizes that that's what's happening. Yeah. Uh, Once again, to get sidetracked for a second, but um, on Gilmore Girls, sure, (laughs) getting that way. No, there's there's a there used to be a podcast called Gilmore Guys. I listened to it. Yeah. So then you know, hopefully you know where I'm going with this. Uh, for those of you that don't know, it's two straight male comedians, one who was a big Gilmore Girls fan and one who had never watched it before, and they watched it together, and it was their different takes on it per episode. And the one who had never watched it before uh, really kind of gravitated towards Emily Gilmore, the grandmother, because he was like, I just think she's such a phenomenally uh, layered character and so complicated. And he says, one of the greatest. Uh, dramatic points of the show and it goes. It gets frustrating after a while because seven seasons of like 25 episodes you can only play that out so much is how Emily and Lorelai both love each other but their languages of love are so different and neither one of them can recognize that and Mm -hmm. it's what keeps the conflict going between them Mm
0: -hmm.
1: like Emily is I love you that's why I bought you this thing Mm -hmm. and Lorelai's like I love you that's why I'm spending this time with you and neither one of them can see that that's sort of the conflict and that's Similar to me with Dot and George, where it's, you know, George loves Dot so much and is inspired by her so much. And his way of showing that is to put her in his work. Yeah. So when he's spending all this time on work, on finishing the hat rather than taking her out to the Follies. It's her hat. Yeah, it's her hat, where she's like, no, take me to the Follies. Right. Um, yeah well I, she wants it both ways actually
0: yeah but it's it, like that's the like that's the important thing is like I, I think you could say that the show is about a guy who makes a hat but I also think it's important that he's making her hat yes. and that 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 is to me it's like it, he says it in, in finishing the hat that she's she's the only one who can bring him back from this world mm-hmm. to this world from that and and that's what happens in Color and Light when you you watch him like so immersed in you know he's literally like red I can do it but I won't the whole red yeah <laughs> but um, he's right just on. like he's in like his own complete world and he comes out to get more paints and he sees her and it's like he gets brought back down to earth mm-hmm. and every he's it's the only thing that can sort of take him out of that is to see her and to see the way the light plays on her face and her hair and her um, body and, you know, who she is and what she, and, and that she's the only one. And I think to me, there's a sense of like, once she leaves, he's just completely untethered. Mm. Um, and, and it's not until she comes back that he can kind of, even though it's a different person, it's yeah. the same person. Beautifully said. I think perhaps the hardest thing about
1: playing George as someone who has never played him, but I did do finishing the hat senior year of college because sure. we had a whole semester dedicated to Sontime. time. And my professor requested that I do... I wanted to do Franklin Shepard Inc. Because I was a show-off. And I was like, I want to do the oh, Rose's Turn of Sondheim male it's songs. A good song. It's a great song. And I, I wanted to do it because it was like so show offy And he was like, do finishing the hat first. And I remember being not annoyed because it's a beautiful yeah. song. But I was like, I want to I wanna act. But part of that song, and I think it's representative of George, is that it can be difficult for actors sometimes to be so... Restrained yeah. and introverted.
0: Totally. While singing this like sweeping song. Yeah, yeah.
1: and and in all of Act One, you the not say the trick to George, but it's so easy to want to have some of that bleeding heart mentality that people yeah. that you talk about with Dot to bring to George. Actors like I want to show the audience that I have emotion and that I can show yeah. it. And it's like George has emotions, but it, he, it's all very much bottled up. And yeah. and you have to be egoless as an actor to yeah. go there I, something that amanda patinkin i thought was so good at was sort of showing the removed removedness of yeah.
0: george I, I always say george is a character who is like overflowing with feeling but it is completely bottled mm-hmm. so it's like it's it's just it's all there and it's like all about to birth to burst but it, it just it just stays contained and so mm-hmm. there's this like constant bursting at the seams of mm-hmm. him but he doesn't ever let it go and I mean it's, it's in the song it's in finishing the hat like if you listen to the, the melody it goes you know the woman that you want to go it goes to this big big, big place Sick. and then it comes down to and he brings it back mm-hmm. down and he pulls it back together and it's like he never fully goes there mm-hmm. whereas like Dot dot has all not belong together notes. where she just releases it and um, I think you know a, a, an actor and a director could talk for hours about what it is about him that that keeps it down there but Mm. but it's it's so compelling to me these two people who just can't work um and i think like i i mean i I think the line that sums it up i said it already is what made it so right together is what made it all wrong the chemistry the i mean dot says it in the opening when she she loves his eyes she loves his beard she Mm -hmm. loves his size she loves everything but most of all she loves his painting and i think that like as as a as a mistress, as a muse, as a, I mean, being an artist mistress was not an abnormal thing. It was like a pretty run of the mill thing. Yeah. Um, but it was very rare that you were actually invited into the creative process and mm. you were like, you were actually a member of it. And she loved his painting so much. And she just, she wanted him to draw her. And like, that was the most sensual thing for them. Mm. And, um,
1: the way, Bern- the way Bernadette Peters says to Manny Patinkin, I'd much rather be in the studio, George, is so sexual. Yeah. Because, like, she loves the process of his painting, but she also loves the idea of him sketching her, like, in an in intimate environment yeah. where it's just them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and she but she loves the idea of being a mistress, yeah. and she wants to do it well, and mm-hmm. I think, like... It- it's it's just, I don't know yeah. she's just such an amazing yeah. character.
1: Well, so speaking of side characters who um, have all this life that we rarely see much of, and speaking of the intimacy of being an artist mistress or an artist partner, let's say there is a second couple, Jules and Yvonne. Uh, and Yvonne, and Jules is this much more successful at the time artist we are to believe. Yeah, sells paintings, very wealthy, has servants, yeah. a daughter, clearly has made a life for himself. And the entire time in Act One, we are made to believe that they are these very snobby, uh, not out of touch, but just uh, these you know, these these very snobby wealthy people who just have no regard for anyone else. Their yeah. intro song is "No Life," where they're looking at one of George's paintings and just like ripping it to shreds. Yeah, and one of my favorite scenes actually is right before we do not belong together and Yvonne and Jules come to see the painting and Jules is very confused by it and rather than being dismissive he's trying to convince George to do what's considered art. Draw faces. Yeah. Yeah exactly draw faces you're not a scientist and you can what I love in that scene at least with the original actors is you can see the actor who plays Jules Charles Kimba I think is his name. Yeah. It's not a place of hate or jealousy or talking down to he thinks George is talented he's like I want the world to see in you what I see in you so just can you be more conventional please Uh, he doesn't understand but then on top of that Yvonne and Dot have a scene and Dot of course tears Yvonne to shreds Uh, what have I done you speak I love it but um, Yvonne says you know, jealousy is a form of flattery. I've been jealous of you. I see George sketching you in the park. He goes,
0: Jules never draws me. Yeah, yeah. seldom sketches
1: me. And it, there's a hurt in her voice because while Jules has chosen to make her his partner in life, at least as you know, mother of his child and keeper of the house, she does not inspire him. Yeah, she, it's not an intimate relationship the way that Yvonne sees dot having with George.
0: Yeah. I always used to think and I I don't know if there's much in the script to support this, but I always used to think that like Yvonne was a dot. Like she was she was Jules' mistress. Mm-hmm. Um but she's the one who got married to him. She's the one who like conceivably like won, you mm-hmm. know, and um but but she never got the intimacy that that yeah. dot and George have. I feel like
1: to bring it back to a subject that our listeners are just fucking tired of me talking about to bring it to carousel for a second
0: sure it's almost as if it's got a bit bit of julie julie
1: julie billy and then carrie and, and enoch julie and billy it's also kind of what made it so right is what makes it all wrong uh in the sense that two people who are so tied to each other just so drawn to each other and even though it's the toxic energy that Billy brings to the relationship that is ultimately his doom and the destruction of the relationship it's also what keeps her with him because everything else in her life is just bleak so even if there's all this pain that comes with Billy he does bring her five minutes of happiness and Mm -hmm. would rather have the five minutes Carrie meanwhile is you know wants the safe sure thing which is Enoch and ends up leading a much colder life in the end because of the safeness of that relationship and i feel like yvonne is a carrie who always wanted to have some julie in her life Uh uh-huh and i mean maybe there's nothing in the script to support this either but just from watching dana ivy last night i'm just it's so very fresh in my brain i just have this feeling it's like she desired to be a dot and only found yeah. out after she got married that she's actually an Avon.
0: Yeah. And yeah. I think it's a good way of thinking about it.
1: Yeah. Like the the idea of marrying an artist was so sexy to her, and th- she thought there was going to be a lot more of those late nights where he would just sketch her because he just had to. Right. And it was more of a I'm gonna go off now and do my thing, and you go to bed, or you make the dinner, yeah. and you make sure the servants are taken care of. And in some ways, it's what she wanted. She wanted to be married to someone creative. She wanted stability, but. You know, at what cost? Yeah. No connection. No way to connect. Yeah. I also wanted to bring up back, to bring back to an earlier subject in terms of art and what art means to people Mm. and how once the artist does it, it doesn't mean as much as it does. The character of George's mother, the old woman, uh, she has a wonderful song at the end of Act One, right before the finale, called Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, so many fucking layers, which I really did not...
0: I don't think I still yet even fully understand that yeah. song. I, don't, I, like, I think I won't until I'm that age. Oh, yeah.
1: But, I mean, I think about our parents and our grandparents. and the old, You know what actually kind of made me see some new levels to that song? And I hate to say it, but it's the Trump era of the Make America Great Again. These people who long for the old view, to mm-hmm. quote the old woman's speech. Uh, and she has that wonderful scene with George where she's she's going senile in general Mm -hmm. um she's losing it in a way but in some ways she does see actually very clear clearly at the same time but she has a scene before beautiful where he's sketching her and she's telling a story about his childhood that's not real Mm -hmm. um but she is waxing poetic about the past because that's what you can do with the past you can sort of make it seem nicer than it was because you know you lived past it you made it through wouldn't we all like to kind of go back to a time where we felt safer and we, you know, know that what the outcome's going to be. I, I, I remember when I wrote that scene in the screenplay, I thought it was purely her being senile, and I was like, she's totally losing it. But it's this idea of... uh Longing for the old view, waxing poetic on the past, and part of the reason why it's important for her to have George continue to paint is to get it all in before it changes
0: again. I know. The quick draw it all, Georgie. Yeah. Which is like uh, th- that line breaks my heart. The Sunday's disappearing.
1: Sunday's disappearing. Quick, quick, draw it all, Georgie. And the way that actresses sing it, because it, it, the way that it's in the music, it's not quick, draw it all. It's That's quick. quick. Draw, Draw it all, yeah. Because like, it's urgent for her. I want. Yeah. The world needs to know what this was. And before then the it goes sun
0: days disappearing. Is so like so charged mm-hmm. and so
1: powerful. But then you have his end, which is pretty, pretty. isn't beautiful. a beautiful.
0: Pretty isn't beautiful. Pretty is what, what changes. changes. What the eye Arrange. arranges yes. is what is beautiful. Yes.
1: And both have a lot of merit because you know George is also right in the sense sense that what changes is wonderful. Like change is good. Um but he also is wrong in the sense that, you know, rearranges and and uh, puts things into your own perspective, then I don't know. it's i'm I'm going into a uh, a grave right now as I dig this because I'm trying to word it and I'm not able to, which is that he arranges these people who we've been seeing throughout the act in a way that, he's able to process, but it's not necessarily who they are, how they become. He makes it beautiful. Yes. He makes it beautiful. And it's how they'll be remembered at the same time.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what she says to him. She says, you make it beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's a sense of like, she actually understands him Mm -hmm. in a way that even Dot doesn't, but, but it, but it's so uh, fleeting Mm -hmm. and it's so kind of, you know, layered and his mother and there's, she's also not fully lucid. And there's, so there's so much about that, but, but this this sense of you make it beautiful and pretty is what changes that's mm-hmm. life but what the eye arranges is what is beautiful like mm-hmm. that's what i can do i can take this fleeting chaos and i can arrange it and i can make it beautiful mm-hmm. and she he's basically saying like i will i will i will do that for you and there's a there's a monologue in that version there's a script on the table
1: yes um, we have that, a script here there's a
0: monologue in that version which is not in the script not in the show um that george says at the at the end of uh, at the beginning of act two yes which session. is when everybody's giving their little speeches about how George died or where they were when they found out that George died. Um, and it, it ends with this monologue where George talks about being a kid and seeing the shadows on the wall. And um, it, it's where really the, the phrase a mission to see comes in, mm-hmm. which it, it's not in any production I've ever seen. So I'm not 100 percent sure why it's in this. But I, I remember reading that and being like this mission like she dot dot calls it that dot says you have a mission a mission to see but but it's i always thought that idea of like he there's something kind of like larger he feels like he has a calling like a something that is larger than just existing on this plane he has to kind of make it beautiful Mm -hmm. um and i don't know if i'll fully ever really understand what that is but i mean i don't think any of us do
1: um you know i mean we can only acknowledge it yeah. and say it. Yeah, yeah. But there's only so much... There's so much in the world. So much beauty in the world. So much beauty.
0: Uh, but we're also, like, we're also theater makers and I feel like, you know, at a certain... I mean, I don't know if I feel it like quite as potently as George does in this musical. I think that's why so many artists are drawn to it. But like, mm. we all have some sort of complex of like, I can bring order to this chaos. Yes. Like, that I have to for some reason. Like, you know, there has to be a beginning and an inciting incident and a middle and an end and a final, th- you know, a thing and an act break and a this and, and an I want song. And there's, there's, there's some sense of like if i can just bring order to the story i can reveal some sort of truth about the human condition that's what we're all trying to do yeah. like whether or not we like you know talk about it that pretentiously all the time sure um so i think that's probably why so many artists are just constantly drawn to the piece <laughs>
1: Confusion for people, and it's something that I've only really been able to slowly unpack myself. The last scene of the show, yeah, George goes back to the island, yes, and he sings a beautiful song called Lesson Number Eight, where he can't see really the beauty in anything anymore, at least the modern George, yes. Um, and then Dot comes back, yes, and mistakes him in a way for his great grandfather, and the conversation they have turns into what essentially would feel like a resolution of the Act 1 George in Act 1 Dot. But people get confused sometimes when they watch it because it's being played by the actor who's doing modern-day George. It's It's the same actor. Same actor, yeah. Same actor plays George in both acts. Yeah. Same actress plays Dot in Act 1 and Marie, the grandmother in Act 2, who is the daughter of Dot. Um, How does that scene work to you?
0: I think you have to think about it like it's the same same character. I Mm -hmm. mean, it's like, obviously, he's 100 years later, but it's... It's the same. It's a continuation of that journey, uh-huh. and it, it, it is the it is also the. I mean, the, the peak of that song, the apex of that song is "We've always belonged together. We will always belong together," which is a, 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 a cementing of like their love for each other, but also of the the what they had as being the thing that birthed all of this art uh-huh. and and this connection and this um, you know when she she turns to him and she says, let me give to you something in return. I would be so pleased. Like there's so much about their relationship where they taught each other and they, and they brought outsides of each other. Um, and that's what he is missing right now. He's Mm -hmm. missing the person that tethers him to earth, that connects him to the, to the actual living, breathing people on planet earth that allows him to see what is beautiful. Um, and, and in act 1 dot was the only person who could do that for him so she's the only person who can do it for him in act 2 mm.
1: and then after that one more reprise of one more a reprise of sunday where all the characters from the painting come back
0: Yeah, and they bow to him, and that is when Emily loses her goddamn mind.
1: (laughs) It is truly a beautiful, beautiful moment.
0: Oh, I mean, I'm crying just thinking about it. Like, when when they they all come in, they circle around him, Dot, like, he doesn't see them, Dot basically taps him on the shoulder, turns Mm -hmm. him around, they're all there, and then on the word forever, they all bow to him, and Mm -hmm. it's like... It's just transcendent. Like it it's, is
1: transcendent. It's perfect. And then the stage goes back to white.
0: Well, yeah, which it hasn't been since the very beginning of the show.
1: Yes. And something that I loved in the last revival, in the Meniere production, is when it all went white. And he reads the, the opening words of the show again, which is, white, a blank page or canvas. His favorite. His favorite. So many possibilities. And in the last revival, he turned around. Get, I just got a chill thinking about it. He yeah. turned around and he let out a gasp. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, this George... Saw the possibility of for a the, white page. Of a white page yeah, and it overwhelms him, yeah, and you know that you're it's you're excited for what's go- to come next from him now that
0: he sort of can see what's yeah. there um or what is and she there. and and dot just sort of disappears into the white mm-hmm. and she it's it, it's a perfect blending of like story and theme I mean like it is it is about it's conceptual it's emotional it's deeply human mm-hmm. it, it's like everything that theater can be summed up in three lines. Yeah.
1: And Pretty. one beautiful image. And one beautiful image. That is... That's a wonderful way to, to cap it off. Uh, I think we should probably end it there shortly. Uh, is there anything that you want to see done with this show that hasn't been done yet? Like, huh. something that, like, you maybe as you've brewed on it since college, you're like, ah, oh, I
0: would love to see a production where this happens. I... I have always wanted to, like, to do... This was sort of a conception that was born when I was in college and has sort of expanded. I've always wanted to do it where, like, act one was outside on, like, an island. Like, like yeah. in a park. Was like So that it was about this, like, pure interaction between artists and and then the world around them where like he had that connection Um, and then act two was in a theater so there was like a sense of like the art the the connection between audience and storytelling Mm -hmm. was was take like the barrier between audience and story was taken away in act one and then it was put back in act two and so that there and then and, and the idea is like can we as an audience connect as as purely Mm -hmm. i don't know if that's like actually a good idea it's like very intellectual and cerebral but i've always thought there was something about like the way the story is presented Mm -hmm. and like putting the audience in the park and putting the audience as 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 these figures who are crossing into the realm of an artist the artist being like this piece of theater um and therefore being immortalized just for for having been there i mean
1: I feel like the Delacorte could do a nice sort of, like, combination of that. Yeah. Because um, you are outside, so you can do Act 1 and it feels more like outside and then Act 2 some way with a set change. Yeah. Could feel a little bit more like a theater. Yeah. Um, I mean, your next project, if you're listening, at Public Theater, <laughs> Emily Maltby's ready. She's here and she ready. She born ready. She don't have to stay ready.
0: Um, true. But, yeah, no, I like that. I like but that. I don't know. I mean, I think... I, there are just so many people I would love to see play these parts. Like there are just so many. Give me some. Give me some names. Um, I'd love to see Jesse Mueller play Dot. Mm-hmm. I feel like she would. She would shred herself. You are open. the
1: first person who told me about Jesse Mueller. I remember this to this day because when she got, wow, cast, I
0: have given you so much. You've <laughs> given
1: so much, many things. You taught me how to concentrate. Uh, yeah, when Jesse Mueller got cast On a Clear Day, I remember this. Clearly yeah, being at. Janet Brenner's apartment.
0: That's my mother for those listening Yes,
1: yes exact, exactly. And I was like, who's this Jesse Mueller? And you, because Jesse Mueller was based in Chicago a, and you were a Northwestern. Yeah. And you were, and you're like, wait, yeah, just wait. You're like, yeah. she's such a huge deal.
0: She, I mean, she was, she was a huge, huge Chicago star. She was in everything in Chicago. I yeah. saw her play Seidel and Fiddler. I saw her play Mary in, uh, uh, merrily I saw like mm-hmm. I saw in everything um, and then it was so exciting when she got cast in on a clear day yeah
1: I, to this day I remember I remember exactly the whole Mueller family by the way they're yeah. all actors oh yeah and Abby is now in six and yeah. yeah it's all it's a whole it's, thing yeah but uh, yeah Jesse Mueller I would like to see her dot any any other dots for Georges
0: um I don't uh, there uh, Georges I don't know I feel like there are a ton of people who could play George I actually thought Jake Hall was really really good I enjoyed him I thought he was great
1: Emily, do you have any projects coming up that people should be looking out for in this calendar year?
0: Um, looks like um, potentially our uh, Evita is going to have a second life, which will be exciting. I can't oh, really insane. tell you more. That's fine. But um, that is exciting. That'll be very exciting.
1: Yeah. Um, and people can find you on what social medias?
0: You can find me on uh, Instagram mm-hmm. at Emily Malpe. Um, you could find me on Twitter, but I don't use it, sure. but you could find me there. if you. And you do have a website. I do have a website, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Um, and yeah. th- that's pretty much the deal. Yeah. You yeah. can email me. No, I'm just <laughs> no uh,
1: as always guys, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, I don't have Twitter and please don't friend me on Facebook. I feel like I need to stop. I, I want to stop saying that, but I have to apparently keep saying it. Please don't find me on Facebook, uh, just because my mom's on there, my grandma's on there. Like, I don't, I don't want that getting infiltrated. Uh, mm-hmm. By all means, follow me on Instagram. I have no problem with that. Uh, like and subscribe, guys. I'm waiting for another gay-ass review. Uh, I really liked the last one that like, compared to this podcast to uh, Under the Docks at P-Town, like, After Midnight. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, re- I request like really gay reviews. They're like this uh, this podcast yeah. is gayer than this. Um, well, I, yeah, yeah, that seems accurate. Exactly right. Th- this podcast is gayer than Mandy Patinkin's diction. Like I don't know, it's uh, something like that. Sure. Than Than Bernadette Peters's Jesus on the Cross pose.
0: I thought I saw Mandy Patinkin at the Apple Store yesterday, but it turns out it wasn't him. <laughs>
1: Great. Story. <laughs> that's a wonderful story. Congratulations. Um, so, Emily, we close out every episode with uh, music from a Broadway diva of some mm. sort, and I'm going to ask you to pick one. However, we have already done Bernadette Peters. Oh, I know so that's sad. that's the caveat, unfortunately. Um, you, While well, you think, let me grab my laptop because I actually have it written down. Okay, this, we've done a lot. So. Okay,
0: great. So I have to pick a new one.
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh boy. We've- We've only had one overlap, and it was Sherry Renee Scott, and it was by total accident because okay. I didn't confirm, and I thought we hadn't done her, but we had.
0: Okay, wow. Okay, I'm, I'm going ha- to have to dig deep, but I already have some give obscure me, options, give me but some I want
1: to know what you've done so far. Well, no, I'm, I'm not going to list all of them. Just give me your options, and
0: I'll tell you if we have done them. Okay. i brand new here. How about LaShawn's? We've done her, sure. How about uh, Tony winner is not a, is not obscure. I was starting not obscure. Okay, uh, the obscure one I was thinking was Gretha Boston.
1: Oh my God, Showboat Gretha Boston. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I'm like, if that's what you want. No, I
0: just was thinking okay. of the most obscure name I could think of. <laughs> You're so gay.
1: Gret Boston. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Tony winner for showboat who played, um, Queenie. Yes, correct. Don't you know the show is
0: coming soon? Yeah.
1: There's a few, wait, wait, just a few seats left here. There's like three
0: people on planet earth who would know what I, who Gret the Boston. Is, and we're two of them. So. Yes, we are. Um, gosh, let's go. What about Liz Calloway? Um, you know what? I don't think we've done her yet. Okay. Then I vote for Liz Calloway.
1: Fantastic. That is keeping it in the family, I see. Yes. Yeah. yeah no, Liz Calloway it is, baby. Okay. Um, great. Uh, until then, guys, this has been Broadway Breakdown. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining today. Thank you for having me. Thank- it's been such a pleasure. Uh, remember, guys, keep on keeping uh, children in art, dot, 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 dot. Yeah. Red, 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 blue. Um, and this is Liz Calloway. Take us away, Liz. Bye. <laughs> who <laughs>
0: will look not to